0: Hey there, welcome to the second episode of the third season of Science & Society. I'm Drew, a med student and fitness junkie.
1: And I'm Liv, a beauty queen turned biochemistry PhD candidate. We're two nerds on a mission to break down the science around us so you can apply it in your life.
0: This month, we're bringing on Dr. Oliver Feen, a pioneer in the field of metabolomics.
1: We'll cover why our metabolism is so important, what incredible information can be learned from the chemical components of metabolic processes, and how bacteria in our gut plays a key role in our own physiology.
0: Let's get after it! Professor Oliver Feem has pioneered developments and applications in metabolomics with over 400 publications to date. Since 2004, he has been a professor at the University of California, Davis. As director of West Coast Metabolomics Center, he oversees his research laboratory, and a separate service core with 40 staff operating 19 mass spectrometers. His laboratory develops and implements new informatics approaches and analytical chemistry methods that are applied to metabolic studies in a range of human and animal models. Professor Feen, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So just like to get the ball rolling here, from a broad perspective, what are metabolomics?
2: So we all are consisting of chemicals, uh, like it or not. (laughs) And it's the chemistry of the cell that interests us. And we eat food and the food is chemicals. And we convert those um, into other chemicals to gain energy. And this is the Greek word for that is metabolism. The overall idea of all these omic sciences is to get a broad overview. So it started with genomics a couple of years ago, where the idea was that people can now sequence and analyze all genes um, in a body and also the um, abundance of those genes in terms of how they are expressed in a cell. So that was a radical new idea uh, roughly in the 90s, so some time ago. But it was cool because for the first time in history, you would get an overview of everything that happens in a cell. Okay, so then came the idea of looking at proteins. Proteins are the um, larger molecules that make things happen in the cell. So they come from the genes, so the genes give the command. Then there's a machinery to make these proteins. And Proteins can take now chemicals and convert them. These specific proteins are called enzymes. And so now the idea was to look at all chemicals together. And that's the omics, right? So all the food compounds, all of the compounds that make a cell grow, like lipids. So you have a layer, every cell is surrounded with a layer. This layer is lipids because it's lipids separate water contents, right? Inside the cell, you have a lot of water. Outside the cell, you have a lot of water. And so the separation is lipids, as you can imagine. So these need to be produced, they need to convert it. All of them have very different structures. And so we would have the idea now to look at all of them at the same time, um, see how they change when you're getting ill, Uh, see how they get changed when you have a demand stressor like heat or any other kind of stress like oxidation stress, ozone, you know, think about ozone um, as being produced by car or traffic. Um, So lots of stressors that we are facing with, not just pathogens, but also many others. So the cell has to respond and the chemicals need to change. So that's the idea of looking at metabolism as an overview. And metabolism is a conversion of cells, Uh, chemicals, sorry.
1: (laughs) So something that that I'm curious about and something that I think would be interesting for our listeners to know, if they didn't know already, that both genetics and proteins are, are really interesting in that they have a pretty signature structure. You know, the DNA has that backbone it's pretty easy to identify a strand of DNA or a strand of RNA in a cell. Likewise, proteins have the peptide backbone. So there's a very signature chemical structure to those molecules. But as you mentioned, when you look at metabolism, all those chemicals are very, very different. Not to mention, I would imagine they're quite a lot smaller than most you know, proteins or, or strands of gen- genetic material in a cell. So when you're looking at all these different metabolites, how are you actually able to figure out what came from metabolism and how are you able to actually measure those things?
2: Great question. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Indeed, the um, ability to have different chemicals and different atoms connect to each other is limitless, right? And it's not only the chemicals that we can produce, but also chemicals that we are exposed to. Um, say, the deodorant, the uh, pharmaceutical agent, um, the things that you inhale when you walk the streets. This is what we call the exposome, right? Uh, You know, that's also chemicals, right? And so the body has to deal with it. There is a limitless way of combinations. However, there are some more likely ones and some that are really very infrequent or very unlikely. So for example, lipids, I just mentioned lipids. Lipids in general also have a, some kind of recurring structure that you have a backbone, as you said. Um, this is a three carbon molecule with hydroxyl groups, it's called. So little atoms that can link to other things. And so these other things are called fatty acids, right? So that's a, a recurring theme Um, from where you can have modifications, lots of modifications, but in principle, um, a set of modifications that you can put into a chart and then say, huh, some of these have a phosphate on it and others do not. So let's say these are the phospholipids and the others are not phospholipids. And so they would break apart in a different manner in an instrument that we call mass spectrometer. And so that can be predicted to some extent, can be predicted similar to the prediction of DNA structure or the protein structure. So so lipids are my friend because they can be nicely predicted. Once I have a friend, I also have things that are more the harder. And these are called plant metabolites or food metabolites. Because in principle, humans eat whatever they can and as much as they can, as we all know, Um, especially we like food that tastes good, like spicy food. This spicy food is um, having lots of chemicals that interest our taste buds, but they are not meant really for us. They are often meant for communication and defense of plants against say pathogens and so on. Um, So, We eat those foods, but many of them, so they come in all uh, shades of gray, not just 50, but many more shades of gray. And that means we got to assemble them and get the best prediction how they would behave and when we put them into this mass spectrometer. And that is really hard. We try to develop methods to predict that, but not easy, Uh, definitely.
1: So something that's interesting uh, that you've talked about a little bit is that a lot of these metabolites in our bodies are related to the food we consume and eventually how it gets broken down. What's really fascinating in humans, though, is that we aren't really the only organism that's dealing with the chemicals in our own bodies. So the gut microbiome is something that people hear a lot about more and more, especially in the scientific community. I feel like the research surrounding the gut microbiome has really kind of blown up a little bit over the last decade or so. Um, We're learning more and more about it. And we're learning more and more about how the gut kind of relates to our brain and how those two kind of interrelate and communicate with each other to keep things in, you know, in check and keep things running the way that they're supposed to. So our gut is aligned with all this bacteria. And that bacteria is also interacting with the chemicals going in and out of our body. How does that relate to the work you're doing and how is that gut microbiome important when we try to learn about how human metabolism works?
2: Yeah, so humans eat, so we don't have to make many things. Yeah, we, have, we can only make things that are easy to make in our own cells, everything else we eat, including, for example, so-called essential fatty acids that we cannot make, but we take from food. Um, these are acids that have a lot of bubble bonds, it's called, um, we also have essential amino acids. So even for amino acids that we absolutely need for our proteins, only half of them we make ourselves. The other ones we have to eat from food. So food is really important for humans <laughs> and many, many other um, mammals, of course. Um, and this food gets into the gut and needs to be then uh, broken down in, you know, from the stomach and later on the Upper intestine and let, um, then in the um, large intestine. And this breakdown needs to um, be facilitated by microbes. Um, this is super critical. Um, and it works better actually when the food is already partly digested or partly um, prepared. And that's how humans learned cooking. Uh, the invention of fire made the food components more accessible to us so that we could get more energy out of the food that we are eating and the gut could actually get shorter. Um, And that supported the development of the human brain. Yeah, just because you needed to get more energy out to support the energy needed for the brain and only then could humans really develop the massive brains that we have today, which is taking about a third of all the energy you have is going to your brain. So um, that's where the microbes help. And that's just one part of it, the energy part. The other thing is the microbes also make compounds that may have direct interaction with our nervous system, including the brain. Um, one is very well known, it's called serotonin. Serotonin is a compound that is derived from tryptophan. That is like in white meat a lot, for example. That's why you get so sleepy. Uh, you know, at, uh, when you eat a big turkey, right? You know, you get very very sleepy. Um, but that's uh, the one of those compounds that is made from it. Ninety percent of the serotonin in the human body comes from microbes. Okay, so that is not just made in the brain. It can be made in the brain, but, you know, the circulating serotonin that we find is a microbial compound. Um, other microbial compounds have been associated with risk, risk for cardiovascular disease, for example. A very small compound made from phospholipids is called TMAO, just a name, <laughs> and it has been associated with risk. Why? We don't know. It's just a finding first, right? That this compound is made by microbes, um, is found in circulation, and is associated strongly with heart attack and stroke. So that is why sometimes people say you should not eat so much red meat, you know, and white meat is better right? This has to do with some of these findings. And these are statistical findings. They're not mechanisms. We don't know yet why that is. So then there are modifications of cholesterol. I think most of your audience have heard about cholesterol. You know, we all need it. It's important also for membranes, again, for these lipid membranes but if you have too much of it, you get deposit in the arteries that can block your arteries and then you have a stroke or heart attack. Um, So that's why we have cholesterol-lowering drugs, like statins. Many people take statins for that reason. But the biggest important part of cholesterol is the part where traveling cars in your arteries take off the cholesterol it back to the liver, and turn it into something called bile acid. These bile acids are then going from the liver to the gallbladder, and from the gallbladder, they get excreted into the gut. Once they are in the gut, they help emulsify fat. So if you have a fatty meal that needs to be broken apart, that's what bile acids do. And then microbes come in and further modify those bile acids. 90% of those bile acids will go back into the body, reabsorbed, and then can go either back to the liver or back to the gallbladder. But some of them actually have functions. Some of these modified bile acids can now um, dock at something called receptors. These are little mm, signaling molecules on the surface of the cell. So they would dock there and transfer a message. And so these modified bile acids made from microbes that come from cholesterol, they actually also act on our nervous system and our different types of physiology. And that knowledge is not old. This is just 10 years, maybe 15 years old. And still people discover today novel bile acids. So there are now uh, over 100 known bile acids But there's always new to find. And then of course you found a new molecule and you wonder, is it by chance? Does it have a meaning? Does it have relevance? And often we don't know yet, right? So we first catalog it, we say, oh, we found a new one. And then sometimes we also find a receptor and that, oh, this one actually has a purpose. We published another paper together with Stan Hazen from Cleveland Clinic, who is the lead investigator about another compound that is um, a modified version of amino acids called glutamine, And again, this not, uh, modified microbial transformed chemical can act on receptors, um, specifically certain adrenergic receptors. Uh, adrenergic receptors are receptors that work on adrenaline. Everybody knows the story about adrenaline when you're very excited So this excitement level of adrenaline when you are very anxious has obviously a lot of physiological consequences. And so now we know that some microbes can make phenylacetylglutamine and then act on these receptors as well. So these kinds of complex interactions between food and what the microbes make out of it, and then some of that will then act on these signaling molecules on the surface of cells makes it really interesting, but also darn hard.
0: <laughs> that really seems like a incredibly complex web of interactions. And the discovery of all of that has to be exciting. It's, it's got to be Something that every day you're like, or not maybe not every day, but every month or so or year, you're opening a couple new doors and <laughs> there's 16 more paths behind that door. So back on going on what you said just now, firstly, the guts role in the development of the brain, you know, it gives it the it helps extract more energy from food so that the brain can grow and evolve to higher processing and higher powered functions if you will is there any then feedback or almost like reciprocity from the brain it's like the gut did a lot for the brain in the development is there anything that the brain has done for the gut going the other way
2: i guess the brain invented fire though that's a good one <laughs> <laughs> um honestly i don't know uh that's an interesting question there's uh, like in the symbiosis, right?
0: Or even today, is there a, a a feedback from the brain? Like you said, for example, like the metabolites can produce phenylacetylglutamate, glutamine that can then act on adrenergic receptors, and that's obviously going to send signals to the brain. And the brain, in turn, will then change the way we maybe are digesting food at the moment. Are there any long term consequences of say changing your diet eating more tryptophan maybe or eating fewer lipids is
2: our behavior determined by the microbes ultimately i don't hope not <laughs> i hope not um i have never seen research on that we have participated in some research where people try to find the metabolic imprint of meditation it's not the exact answer in your question but the question is like, when we meditate a lot, would that alter our metabolism? And we have not found evidence for that. So at least from that perspective, we didn't see a uh, um, feedback mechanism from the brain to the rest of the body, at least not in this simple sense. Of course, you know, you hope that your brain will make the right decisions for you in terms of exercise, but I The human behavior is incredibly complex, and I don't think it's just determined by chemistry. Um, That's not the way I think it works. There are, however, uh, interesting other stories about evolution and the human gut. So, for example, we have all been babies, all of us, and we've all been born, born by mothers. So far, so clear. The mothers often do breastfeeding. The human milk has a compound, the, actually the second most abundant compound, chemical in human breast milk, cannot be digested by human enzymes. So why now would the woman, the mother, make a compound that the baby cannot use? The answer is because the, the, this can be digested by only one very specific bacterium in the gut. So we have co-evolved with that bacterium. So we feed that very specific bacterium so that in turn that bacterium helps the immunity of the child. So survive infections for the baby after it's born. So this is like really interesting that human genes have evolved to help a very specific gut bacterium in a very specific moment in life. I find it like cool. Um, And now what do we do with this knowledge? Now that we know this, that this um, is the fact for human breast milk, now we can look at formula, milk formula, for kids who are not breastfed. For example, kids in the neonatal unit. So kids that are prematurely born and they have a double whammy. They do not get the microbes from the mother during birth and they do not get the microbes from the environment because they're in an incubator and they don't get these important specific compounds you find in the breast milk. Now that we know this, we can go to the clinical care in the neonatal units and give those microbes and those compounds to the babies to help the immune system of those prematurely born babies so that's kind of like really nice story how that gut metabolism and metabolomics that actually found these compounds works towards actually application in human health care in babies so that's actually one of my favorite stories and i was by the way i was not involved in that story it's a story that came out of uc davis not from my lab <laughs> i gotta say that
1: It's a really inspiring story, really, because when this new field of science kind of starts to develop, you almost don't know what you're able to do with it. You know, I'm sure that the first person who proposed the first study in proteomics or genomics didn't realize how how large those fields would become and how much there was to learn. I'm still surprised all the time by how much we don't know. In all sorts of fields of science, any sort of cancer or disease, there's always new information coming out. So it's remarkable how helpful such specific pieces of information can be. And we almost don't realize how powerful those little nuggets of information really, really are. And when I think about gut health and the gut microbiome and and how we can use it in the future? I often think of people with digestive disorders like IBS or uh, SIBO, where you have the bacterial overgrowth in your small intestine. I actually dealt with some version of gut microbiome imbalance back in the day, and it was really difficult to diagnose because there's not really good ways to measure and quantify what is going on (laughs) in your gut. And I think that is a field and an area where metabolomics really has so much space to go, because this is the first time that we're really understanding what's going on, not just, you know, in the gut in general, but, but specifically what is going on in these microbes that are processing the chemicals coming into that environment and how they're actually in- impacting the person that they're supposed to be living symbiotically with. But once those things go a little off balance, the effects are so large. So I'm, I'm really excited to see what else metabolomics is able to discover in that space.
2: Yeah. So we have, uh, don't know if you know, we just published a paper on that, how to even probe the upper GI tract. For your listeners, when you usually talk about gut uh, microbiomes, people usually mean, mean poop, meaning like uh, feces that you excrete. And this is not from the upper GI tract. This is from the colon, which is a completely different environment, than the upper tract of the uh, gut intestine. So that is really hard, almost like a terra incognita, something that we don't know how to explore. So we published a paper uh, in Food and Function this year, where we had a volunteer and this volunteer put a tube inside himself or herself. And this reached with a little anchor all the way to the upper GI tract. And then over the course of 24 hours, this person you know recorded what this person was eating with a tube inside. And you know, we withdraw samples through the tube. We could follow how the food was modified in real time. So that was really cool. It's published, lots of little, little anecdotes, but it of course was only one person. So the question is now what to do with patients who have bacterial overgrowth or inflammatory bowel disease that you just mentioned, but also other diseases like Crohn's disease, which are all diseases that happen in the upper GI tract, not in the lower GI tract. And for that, we work with, the, with an inventor, a small company in the Bay Area. And these people have um, developed and invented a small pill, like just like a regular pill that you would that you would swallow anyway, and this pill would open in the upper GI tract and take samples, um, not only once but up to four times, and so then they would excrete it with the feces, and you can collect it from there. So that is a way for a non-invasive probing of that area, that is pretty much unknown to people. So we only know it from mice. We know it from dogs. Because animals, you know, either die of natural causes or can be killed for scientific purposes. So we know a little bit about what happens in the upper GI tract, but not in humans. So we have now done the very first study on 15 people. Um, using those pills, we are preparing some publications about it, uh, still investigating the data. But you know, at least to know how diverse people are. Are men different than women? Maybe, maybe not. You know, what is the difference between, or the variants, you know, between regularly healthy people? So this is not even people with a disease, but we need to have a baseline. So what is actually a healthy gut um, in terms of both the microbes that live there? And of course there's far, far fewer microbes living in the upper GI tract compared to the lower one, but they're very, very different. They're completely different. So one of the not very surprising discoveries was, of course, you cannot predict what happens in the upper GI tract when you just look at colon or feces. And so all the other papers that you see in the literature, which call about the gut microbiome, actually only talk about the colon. Um, And that is very important to understand that certain diseases have nothing to do with the colon only with the upper GI tract. And, well, we submitted a clinical trial for specifically bacterial overgrowth, as you said, but we were rejected. So this is how science is. So You have an idea, you have, you put it in, then reviewers said, we don't like it, so you try again, right? So this is how it is.
0: <laughs> that explanation and, and description of this new pill is one of the reasons I really do love doing these interviews. You get to kind of see some cutting edge and hear about some cutting edge stuff going on. These discoveries are really cool and the, the technology that's being created every day, I'm, I'm sure the Bay Area is a hot spot for it. It's <laughs> it, it truly is remarkable and something like that I'm sure is simple in its product but all, but very like complex and intricate in the way it's it's delivered and the way it was conceived if you will the idea was made uh so that's like super cool
1: i can tell you that so many grad students probably worked so hard to make that pill possible uh we all we all work very hard to make these things happen <laughs> of course under the uh important guidance of people like professor fien so there's a lot of work that goes into something so simple but you mentioned the scientific process of submitting an idea getting some feedback sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't. Um, I want to hear a little bit about your scientific journey, your personal scientific journey. Why are you where you are today? And what are the steps that you took to get there? Okay.
2: So I was an environmental activist back in the 80s, also a peacenik, um, really trying to understand environmental hazards caused by the chemical industry. And I was upset about how people treated the environment and actually, as the land. And so I decided if I want to be engaged, I need to learn about chemistry. I cannot just be upset and then meet an expert and then feel helpless because I cannot say if the expert tells me bullshit. So (laughs) that's why I actually started studying chemistry. Um, I did also my Ph.D., then, and also my, both my uh, diploma, which is like a master thesis um, in Germany, um, and my PhD also in Germany, on the question where we looked, had industrial wastewater. And industrial wastewater can be very complex, very hard to look at. And unlike other analytical chemists, still today and also at that time, my task was not to find a specific compound but to find the reason why that wastewater was toxic. So we ha- I had a lot of toxicity assays and then I tried to find the compounds that were guilty in that. Um, while my colleagues, other grad students, try to clean the wastewater to make it less toxic and I need to find those compounds, what happened to them. So that was really uh, my start of my career as a PhD student. Um, then I was unemployed, um, and of course you want a job, and I, you know, applied many times. But at that time there were so many PhDs in Germany, not so many positions. So I finally got a job in a molecular plant physiology institute at Max Planck uh, close by. But I was a chemist; I did not know plants. I mean, I know plant. I mean, I wander the earth and I see plants, but I didn't know them, right? So I applied, I got the job, and my job was to identify unknown compounds. And I said, yeah, I can do that, you know? Uh, The instruments they had were completely uh, unsatisfying, but I needed a job anyway, and I published a paper how to do it. And then I said, well, what's the purpose anyway? And they said, look at all metabolites, Uh, because we have the idea that with this way, when we look at all metabolites, we can understand how pesticides might work and also what kind of functions genes might have that we knock out. So this was about 25 years ago. And so then I published the first paper and at that time I called it metabolite profiling out of which the word metabolomics came very, very quickly. So that was really the start of it. And so that means the technology for metabolomics came out of Europe and when in 2004, the United States slowly thought, maybe that's a field of interest that we should look at. They offered me a faculty position here. I looked at it and I thought, wow, you know, this is a great, a great country and a great state of California. Um, I always wanted to go abroad, so why not do it? Um, so that's, that's how it came about.
1: That is the coolest reason someone's gotten a PhD that I've talked to so far on this podcast is just simply to be the expert and to be able to weed out the bullshit. So that is an awesome story. Thank you so much, Dr. Fein, for being on the show and for sharing so much of your expertise in this field. And I'm really excited to follow it and see what else comes out of it over the next decades to come.
2: Thank you for the interview.
1: All right. Well, that was a phenomenal episode, Drew. And with a phenomenal episode comes a phenomenal segment.
0: Sure does. This month's segment is Silly science with Drew.
1: My favorite.
0: On today's episode, the title of the paper we're looking at, which feels heavier, a pound of lead or a pound of feathers? A potential perceptual basis of a cognitive riddle.
1: Okay, so I'm trying to figure out what the answer was here. Do you know which one feels heavier? Are you going to walk me through this?
0: Well, I need you to venture a guess here first.
1: Well, okay, so if someone gave me a pound of lead or a pound of feathers, I would feel like the concentrated mass of the lead would make it feel heavier. You know what I mean? Like on your fingers, it would feel like there's more because the, the mass is concentrated in one spot then if, if you had like a bag of feathers that weighed a pound, it would be spread across your hand. So that's my guess.
0: Right. So that is the commonly held like answer to this in that lead is more compact. Therefore, people postulate that it has a, the center of mass is more um, central, more compact. And as a result, it feels heavier. You perceive it to be heavier even though a pound is a pound, regardless if it's a lighter feathers. Um, however, these researchers set out to test whether this held true when a pound of feathers and a pound of lead were in the same exact size container. Oh. So the center of mass was the same. So what they did is they gave blindfolded participants 20 trials. They said, here's box A, box B, which one feels heavier? And on average, lead felt heavier in 11.13 out of 20 trials.
1: Really? Even when the center of mass was the same? Like the volume was the same? Yep. Why? Which is wild.
0: Maybe we have like a sixth sense.
1: Yeah. Wow. What? Maybe. There's no reason for that. I can't think of why that would be the case if the volume of the two is the same.
0: and, And they really couldn't give a straight answer either. But it was an interesting finding nonetheless, and it was significant. It had a p-value of 0.015.
1: Oh, what a great p-value to have that p-value every time. Wow. Well, Drew, I, you've stumped me on that one. I really don't know uh, what to make of it, but that is pretty cool.
0: It is. It is. And unfortunately, that is all for this month's episode. Check out Oliver's work at metabolomics.ucdavis.edu. You can follow us on Instagram at Science and Society to catch our new releases, upcoming topics, and of course, our science shenanigans.
1: If you're enjoying our show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find Science and Society. We release a new show on the first Monday of every month, so episode three is coming your way on January 3rd.
0: Peace, love, and science.